Exurga des dissipentur inimici eius, et fugiam cioderunteum a facia eius. Let God arise, and let his enemies be scattered, and let all those who hate him flee from before his face. So, <clears throat> I was surfing through, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to talk about today, and I stumbled on an article that actually got me to stop all of the other um, sort of screening that I was doing looking for something to talk about. And it is from the WM Review, and it's wmreview.co.uk. So it's a British site. Um, I've never read never read from these people before, uh, but I stumbled on it and I was just like, you know, this is actually worth talking about. So this might be a little bit of a longer podcast because I'm going to read the whole article and then I want to talk a little bit about it as to where I am based on some of the things that are very obvious. Now, I'm going to read the article and I'm going to try my best to abstain from commenting on it until the end. Um, because all I really did was like, I not, like I noticed that it, a lot of times when I read articles, I'll answer back. And then I already know that when I go to read the article, I'm like, that's going to happen. Well, in this particular case, my answer back was, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. I'm not there. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <clears throat> so I should have a little bit of an easier time and I hope to not get lost. Um, Mirror of <laughs> Speculum Justitiae Ora Pronobus. Anyway, this is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. Let's get started with a prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Sancta Michael Arcangela, defende nos in proelio, contra nequitiam et insidias, et diabolios do praesidium. Imperatili Deus supplicas deprecamur, duque princeps militae calestis, Satanam aliosque spiritus malignos que ad perditionem animarum, pervegantur in mundo divina virtute, in infernum ne trude. Amen. Speculum justitiae ora pronobis, mater dolorosa ora pronobis. Sancti Iosef ora pronobis, Sancta Michael Arcangela ora pronobis. Domine ostende facem tuum et salvi edimus, Ave Maria Purissima, Immaculata conceptio est. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. I don't often talk specifically church stuff. It's one of the reasons, like, I don't like getting into, like, okay, I've already made it very clear. I'm not a set of a contest. Um, and when, when we get to the end of the article, I, I want to talk about why I'm not willing to go that far, but... Now that I have this article to kind of balance it out, um, I think I know how better how better to explain, um, <clears throat> including why I think it may be dangerous. The title of the the headline of the article from the WM Review that's uh, the Whiskey Mike Review for those of you who for those of you who speak radio talk. Pope Honorius and Roberto De Mattei interlude the human mind's ability to apprehend reality without the intervention of authority. This article is a set of reflections and observations rather than a more tightly argued essay. 
While it has arisen from my ongoing study of Demete and his concept of a, quote, heretic, heretic pope, and addresses certain relevant points, it is supplementary and informal. You know, I got to say that I'm really glad that the snows have brought so many more trucks without engine brakes on their, or without engine brake mufflers on their trucks. It's absolutely wonderful. I don't know if you heard it. I hope you did not. Probably hear it at least two or three more times. It's been a lot today. All right. From the article, again, hopefully without any further interruptions like that. As a very wise man once asked, if the Pope dies and nobody knows about it, does he retain office until someone finds him? Would we have to treat him as Pope until some process has recognized the fact of his death and declared otherwise? These questions, while facetious, reveal a certain tendency in the Catholic discourse, or excuse me, they, <clears throat> these questions, while facetious, reveal a certain tendency in Catholic discourse um, has over the application of law. Theology has a place of priority over canon law, but there can be temptation for some to emphasize positive human law, positive and human law, at the expense of more primary things. This tendency can in turn lead to a reductive positivism with unjustified conclusions. For example, the existence of a canonical process to establish a fact or guilt is sometimes taken to mean that such a process is necessary for to attain this end. As such, the existence of such a process for establishing that someone is a heretic is taken by some to mean that one cannot establish this with certainty without this process. Another view, which amounts to the same thing, is that while one may be able to establish such things with certainty, they lack any effect until they are established at law by an authority. Even effects which follow from the nature or cause are denied in a sort of legalistic occasionalism, comparable to suggesting that the water will only freeze at zero degrees centigrade if God directly intervenes and makes it so. A further variation of this idea is, excuse me, a further variation of this is the idea that all words must be understood in specifically canonical terms as if canon law has a primacy over theology. This is sometimes used to establish a priori conclusions. In the case of public heresy, it can lead to diversions such as wrangling over how this or that canonist defines the word public. Some indeed today try to insist that nothing is public in the relevant sense until it has been declared as such by an authority. According to this view, a bishop whose heresy and pertinacity are public knowledge remains nonetheless a member of the church and retains his office and jurisdiction until a process or some authority intervenes. As an example of this, Professor Roberto de Matei says the following on the heretic pope thesis. Quote, Loss of office is not automatic, since as a visible society, the church's official acts must also be visible. The heretical pope continues in office until the full outward manifestation of his heresy. I think that the errors or heresies of Pope Francis, even if professed publicly, do not entail his loss of the papacy, since they are not known and manifest to the Catholic population. 
close quote. This is a good example of wrangling over the word public in order to establish an a priori conclusion, namely that Francis is certainly the Pope. To this end, Demite introduces an arbitrary requirement for Francis to fulfill beyond what is warranted by authorities before he can be counted as a manifest heretic. Please be clear, we are not here talking about the heretic Pope thesis. We're solely talking about membership of the church. We're only discussing the loss of office insofar as Demite links it to public heresy and membership. In other words, what Demite claims are errors or heresies, and which he admits are professed publicly, fail, in his mind, to have the effect of destroying a man's membership in the church and are compatible with the church's visible unity of faith. While refraining from committing himself, Demite appears to express the view that this point is only reached after a series of warnings. Quote, only by persisting in heresy after repeated admonition would the Pope lose the papacy, close quote. But this is just an example of this tendency, and as I have mentioned, I'm not here discussing what happens to a heretic Pope. Rather, in this essay, I want to consider a few examples in which the Church has expected the faithful to use their God-given intellects to ascertain facts and to act upon them. Let's consider one interesting example that of clerical concubinage. The Council of Rome. In 1059, the Council of Rome decreed that a layman could not attend the Mass of a priest whom he knew to have a concubine. The great 12th century canonist Gratian explained that the idea behind this, uh, the idea behind this idea, was that if the faithful were to shun such a priest, he would be helped to come to repentance. In the face of this clear decree, some canonists raise an objection. Quote, How is this to be reconciled with the fact that the laity are not to be judges of priests, but are to leave this judgment to the bishop, or, to, or that one has not the right to refuse the sacraments from a priest whose way of life one disapproves, as though his sacraments were therefore less holy? Close quote. Such canonists doubt it that it was possible for the faithful to shun such priests, objecting that this would make them judge and jury of a priest who was offering valid, and therefore holy, sacraments. As a result of this difficulty, some concluded, against the sense of the canon, that the, quote, intervention and judgment of the bishop were required before they might act upon it, close quote. Implicit in this idea, or implicit in this, is the idea that a person is incapable of drawing a judgment of reality or acting upon it without a declaration or permission of, a, of an authority. Others introduced the distinction between secret and public concubinage. They concluded that rather than being obliged to shun the priest whom they knew was living with a concubine, the faithful were merely allowed to avoid such priests and only if this was common knowledge. But against all these attempts to change or empty the canon of meaning, Pope Alexander II later confirmed the regulation as it stood. Nor was this the end of such wrangling. Pope St. Gregory VII Pope St. Gregory VII, reigning 1073 to 1085, made further impositions along the same lines. The Catholic Encyclopedia tells us, quote, 
St. Gregory interdicted such priests from saying mass and from all ecclesiastical functions, while the people were forbidden to hear the mass which they celebrated or admit their ministrations so as so long as they remained contumacious, close quote. He tirelessly rooted out clerical, co clerical concubinage through such means against much opposition. The historian Darius tells us that St. Gregory and a council issued a, quote, withering decree against those priests who had bought their holy office for gold or who profaned it by their loose morality, close quote. He ruled that anyone who refused to comply was, quote, to be at once deposed, to be deprived of all their powers, close quote. But this was not all. This decree renewed the prohibition against laymen hearing their masses. Quote, the faithful were forbidden to assist at the masses or offices celebrated by these rebel priests or to receive the sacraments at their hands. Close quote. This led to resistance from many quarters. Of particular interest to this essay are those making canonical arguments such as this. Quote, there were many who, without touching the grounds of the doctrine, sought to weaken the authority of the decree by intrinsic considerations. They maintained that it was very dangerous to forbid the faithful to receive the sacraments from the hands of scandalous priests, since this would make laymen the judges of ecclesiastical questions. Close quote. Darius tells us that this line of argument was adopted by the bishops of Italy, France, and Germany. How did St. Gregory respond to this claim? Quote, The resolution of Gregory VII, he says, became more fixed and irrevocable. Close quote. He ordered the Catholic sovereigns of Europe to ensure that these decrees were enforced, seeing as he could not rely on the bishops. Later, in 1075, he issued another degree, decree which addressed lay investiture, simony, and clerical celibacy, and then reinforced again his previous instruction that the lay faithful to were to avoid concubinous clerics. Quote, the faithful should not assist at the offices celebrated by a cleric they see trampling upon the apostolic decrees. Close quote. Maronamia. There is no implication here that they are to await a decree a declaration, a process, or a sentence. The Pope and his predecessors and successors expected and entitled the faithful to apprehend reality and act upon it without doing mental acrobatics or worrying about subjective or internal guilt. Let us summarize. A great and holy Pope decrees that the faithful are to avoid the masses and sacraments of priests they know to be keeping a concubine, in response, a large section of persons making legalistic arguments claiming that the faithful are unable or should be prevented from acting on this decree without a declaration or the intervention of authority. Finally, this great and holy pope rejects this legalistic argument and reaffirms his original decree. St. Gregory won the day. The Catholic Encyclopedia holds that the First Lateran Council in 1123, quote, may be said to mark the victory of the cause of celibacy, close quote, 
In the same century, the decretals of Gratian express the same obligation for the faithful and do not appear to require an intervention of authority for them to make the judgment and act upon it. St. Thomas, perhaps because the campaign of St. Gregory and others had reduced the prevalence of clerical concubinage, states that this prohibition on hearing such masses applies when the priest is notoriously guilty, either from sentencing and legitimate confession. Nonetheless, he also includes a case in which it is, quote, impossible to conceal his guilt by any subterfuge, close quote. Oof. So we see that even at 12, in the 12th century, the presence of a process for dealing with concubinous clerics did not deprive the faithful of their right and duty to apprehend reality and act upon it. The fact that they were not legally declared to be contumacious was irrelevant. This was a concrete example of the church intervening and ruling against those who felt that in this case, a declaration was necessary to prevent the church falling into chaos. Let's consider another example of the churches evidently expecting us to use our intellects and to act upon the basis of what we apprehend. Violent Hands Without going into detail, the document Ad Evitanda Scandala of Pope Martin V was issued as a response to the Great Western Schism, in which there were three claimants to the papacy, and various nations were mutually excommunicated. Under the law at the time, one was obliged to avoid various excommunicated persons. Having healed the schism, Pope Martin V, I can't believe I said schism instead of schism. I normally say schism because the CH is always a k sound. <clears throat> Having essentially healed the schism, Pope Martin V wished to resolve some of the confusion. As such, he ruled. Quote, no one henceforth shall be bound to abstain from communion with anyone in the administration or reception of the sacraments on pretext of any ecclesiastical sentence or censure globally promulgated, whether by the law or by an individual, unless the sentence or censure in question has been specifically and expressly published or denounced by the judge on or against a definite person, college, university, community, or place. In other words, interdicts, censures, and so on, were no longer to be held to oblige the faithful to abstain from receiving the sacraments from a priest unless the sentence had been expressly published against a specific person or class of persons. But he continued, Martin V left in place an obligation to abstain from communion with certain persons. Quote, someone of whom it shall be known so notoriously that he has incurred the sentence passed by the canon for laying sacrilegious hands upon a cleric that the fact cannot be concealed by any tergiversation. Wow, I don't even know what that word means. <clears throat> by any tergiversation, nor excused by any legal defense. For we will abstinence from communion with such a one in accordance with the canonical, sanction, canonical sanctions even though he not be denounced. Close quote. Again, to paraphrase, Martin V expressly stated 
that the faithful were to avoid the sacraments from a man who had notoriously incurred an automatic punishment for laying violent hands on a cleric. He cannot be talking about a declared punishment since that empties the passage of all meaning. Notoriously cannot be given a legalistic construction as Martin V expressly applies for this person, quote, even though he not be denounced, close quote. Some points on heresy. By the way, I apologize. That those last couple sentences were kind of sloppy coming out of my mouth. Anyway, continuing from the article. Some points on heresy. Returning to the topic of heresy, though again, not that of the heretic pope question. Can we know someone to be a heretic and have incurred certain consequences without the intervention of authority, be that through canonical warnings or a canonical declaration or sentence? This is an important question. In his encyclical, Mystici Corporis Christi, Pius XII taught that, among other things, it was a requirement that a person, quote, profess the true faith, close quote, in order to be included as a member of the church. He also taught that the effect of heresy is, quote, such as of its own nature to sever a man from the body of the church, close quote. As we have established elsewhere, theologians have understood this to refer to public heretics who, by their external profession of heresy, quote, separate themselves from the unity of the Catholic faith and from the external profession of that faith, close quote. We are not talking here about excommunication. Heretics certainly do incur excommunication, but this is additional to their loss of membership in the church and not its cause, as we will see below. The cause is, as Pius XII says, and as theologians explain, the nature of public heresy and also the visibility of the church itself. As such, the question of whether this public heresy is knowable without the intervention of authority is very important. Let us consider some witnesses and authorities. Cardinal De Lugo teaches that in some cases, not necessarily all, it is possible for us to be certain that a person has become a public heretic with the necessary pertinacity and bad will. He writes, quote, Not even in the external forum is a warning and preceding correction always required for someone to be punished as pertinacious. For if it be certain by some other means, for example, if the doctrine in question be well known, or if it be obvious from the kind of person and other circumstances involved, that the accused person could not have been ignorant of the opposition of his doctrine to that of the church, he will automatically be judged a heretic. Close quote. Now, by talking of punishment and judging, it is clear that De Lugo's reflections at least include the context of a trial. But it would be begging the question to assume that these principles apply exclusively to such a situation. In the same place, DeLugo states that a process of warnings is based on the need to make sure the accused is, quote, aware of the opposition between his error and the doctrine of the church, close quote. For the same reason, the accused is asked whether he is aware of such a contradiction, not because this might be the only way of establishing pertinacity, but because it is a swift and sufficient means of establishing it. He continues. So if he knows the whole subject much better himself from books and conciliar definitions than he could from the words of anyone admonishing him, 
there is no reason for a warning to be necessary for him to be pertinacious against the church. Close quote. In other words, DeLugo is asserting that there are some cases of this kind in which we can attain the truth with necessary certainty from the facts alone. Again, an ecclesiastical court being able to establish this in this way is by no means uh, by no means prevents an educated or informed individual, whether lay or clerical, from doing so in some circumstances. We can also turn to an interesting and colorful source, the 15th century inquisitorial handbook, the Malleus Maleficarum, about rooting out witches. Due to the controversy of this source, I want to emphasize I am treating it as a witness rather than an authority. It, it provides us with this interesting text. Quote, There are two kinds of judgment, one belonging to God, who sees inner matters, and the other to men, who can pass judgment on inner matters only through outer ones, as the third argument admits. Now, the man who is judged to be a heretic in the judgment of God is truly a heretic according to reality, since God judges only a person who has an error of the faith in his understanding to be a heretic. As for the person who is judged to be a heretic in the judgment of men, it is necessarily the case not that he is a heretic according to reality, but that he has committed an act by which it is apparent that he has a wicked opinion about the faith and consequently is considered a heretic by the presumption of law. Close quote. So, we see an explicit rejection of the idea that we cannot know someone to be a heretic due to the subjective state being unknown to us. While this is not exactly the point we're making, it is key for the idea that we must have a legal declaration to know such a thing. Now, certainly the inquisitors followed a process which ended in a declaration and a sentence. Nonetheless, the principle here is instructive, and it does not clearly apply to only to judgments arrived at by the judicial process. Indeed, such an interpretation would empty the passage of meaning. It does not exclude a cognitive judgment, which is the sort of judgment necessary for judge at an ecclesiastical trial anyway. Here is an objection. We cannot know that a person is subjectively guilty of heresy, viz. is pertinacious in his otherwise obvious denial or doubt of dogma, because only God judges internals. As such, we are told there must be an intervention of some process in order to establish his pertinacity. But the passage above explains that the church, even by her process, is not seeking to judge internals, but merely to establish pertinacity in the external form according to a moral certainty. There is no suggestion here, nor have we seen compelling arguments elsewhere, that it is, per se, impossible to establish this through other means. Further work must be done to establish such a claim. This principle was taken up by St. Robert Bellarmine in his discussion of Liberius. Without entering into the discussion of Liberius himself, here is Bellarmine's comment. Quote, Although Liberius was not a heretic, Still, it was considered that on account of the peace made with the Arians that he was a heretic, and from that presumption his pontificate could rightly be abrogated. For men cannot be held th to thoroughly search hearts. Yet when they see one who is a heretic by his external works, then they judge simply and condemn him as a heretic. Close quote. 
Again, it would be gratuitous to to assert that this applies only to an ecclesiastical trial. This is because divine law commands us, as St. Paul says, in various places and ways to avoid heretics, even in the loose sense. This is because of the danger they pose, whether putatively in authority or not, to the faith. But this does not exclude the possibility of knowing that someone is a heretic in the strict sense either. Now, please note why I have presented these three sources. I have not presented them to make any particular claim about Francis or anyone else. The point that I am making is that these three sources show, in their own way, an attitude which concedes to the human intellect the power of judging with certainty that someone is a heretic in certain cases. This can be summed up in the modern popular language of Dom Felix de Sarda y Salvani, in his book approved by the Holy Office. Quote, it would be rendering the superior rule of faith useless, absurd, and impossible to require the supreme authority of the church to make its special and immediate application in every case and upon every occasion which it call, which calls it forth. Close quote. Law follows reality. But given all that, are the laws mentioned on avoiding concubinous clerics, etc., still in force? As I have said, it hardly matters, as this is not the point at all. The important thing here is that the canonical processes for dealing with concubinous clerics, sacrilegious violence, and heresy do not necessarily render the human mind incapable of apprehending reality, nor do they necessarily say anything about what one should do when one has certain knowledge of a situation. This is because these processes, at least in some cases, follow the reality of the facts. In a similar vein, we see Father Sylvester Berry explaining how a legal condemnation for heresy follows a person's loss of membership, at least for public heretics. Quote, It is a well-known fact that the Church has always demanded the strictest unity in the profession of faith. Those who refused to profess even a single doctrine were condemned as heretics who had already ceased to be members. Close quote. In other words, by deliberately departing from the profession of faith, they became heretics, and a condemnation merely follows what has already happened by the nature of the facts. Similarly, we saw above that DeLugo holds the, that trials and processes are effective means of quickly establishing guilt, but that they are not the only means of doing so. In a more modern controversy, we see that Canon 646.1 deals with certain acts which result ipso facto in them being considered as legitimately dismissed. Canon 646.2 then states, quote, In these cases, it suffices that the major superior with his chapter or council issue a declaration of fact according to the norm of the Constitution. What does this mean? In 1934, in answer to a question, Code Commission ruled that the declaration is not necessary for the religious to have been considered legitimately dismissed. The existence of the fact itself produces the effect and requires others to treat the person accordingly. What then is the purpose of the declaration? Herbert Jonet, I think that's how you say it, addresses this question, explaining that such a declaration is made without a trial that it is not equivalent to a judicial sentence or even a declaratory sentence, that it has no required formalities, 
and that it is not required for the effect of the dismissal. He then states, quote, The declaration of the fact and the conservation of the evidence are prescribed so that the dismissal may be fully established in law and to offset future doubts and possible difficulties. Close quote. There are those who may seize on this phrase, established in law, and suggest that we cannot act until this has happened, or as if the person still has, is, is still a legal religious until this happens. But this is simply begging the question in the face of clear statements to the contrary. It sums up the problem we have been addressing throughout, to restate the problem. Some persons have a tendency to insist that at least for some matters, an individual is unable or not allowed to recognize reality, draw conclusions, or make practical judgments until there have been some intervention of authority. In the case of public heresy, there is even a sort of occasionalism which denies the intrinsic effect of public heresy on the membership of the church and tries to insist that this effect only follows the decree. As I said, this is comparable to suggesting that the glass shatters only because God intervenes at the very moment that the brick hits it. But as we have seen, canonical processes are, at least sometimes, just the enactments of positive law to establish something legally which is already established, with its consequences in fact, such as notorious concubinage sacrilegious violence or public loss of membership of or office for whatever reason. A declaration or sentence can indeed then have, then have a different implication for the general populace, who may then be obliged to acknowledge a reality which they had hitherto doubted. But what has this to do with those who did know of this crime with certainty? Let those who want to tell us, tell us. Why are traditionalists doing this? It is especially strange to see traditionalists standing on ceremony over the need for legal processes and declarations. Let us not forget that we are the ones who have judged. One, that the new mass is a species of non-Catholic worship and dangerous to the faith. Two, that certain doctrines of the Second Vatican Council and other official texts are in contradiction with the perennial teaching of the Church. 3. That John Paul II et al. cannot possibly be true saints. 4. That the Novus Ordo system, for lack of a better word, is a non-Catholic religion. 5. That, by and large, we must reject the 1983 Code of Canon Law. 6 that we must avoid the men who have been appointed by the putative bishops of our dioceses, and seven, that we must set up chapels either wholly or morally independent of these putative bishops. After this list, I do actually want to, want to make a note. This is a set of a contest article. As becomes very, very clear, because they make statements that I've not heard anybody in the traditional circles actually make. So, understanding that this is a set of a contest article, this is, if some of that rubbed you the wrong way, I didn't write the article. I'm just reading it because they pose some very, very good arguments. And that bullet list, I'm going to go back over. 
Continuing from the article. And yet, after all this, some of us wince back and insist we cannot apprehend certain facts without a declaration or the intervention of some authority or wait for some arbitrary decree of publicity beyond what authorities require or else we will be guilty of private or rash judgment. I am not disputing the existence of things which might require such declarations, but I am stating that such a requirement must be proved and that the existence of a process does not do so. We can summarize the argument in a simplistic way like this. One, there exist in canon law certain processes for establishing certain facts. Two, there would not be such processes in canon law unless they were the only means of establishing certain facts. Three, therefore these processes are the only means of establishing certain facts. When stated in syllogistic form, we can see that the second premise is, is gratuitous, at least as stated. As such, we can deny that it, and with it, its conclusion. Those who want to prove that certain facts can only be established with a legal intervention need to develop the argument for each specific case further. Now, to be sure, some come to those conclusions with more sophisticated arguments. Good for them. They've developed their arguments further, as I just mentioned. Nonetheless, this simplistic syllogism is a representation of a tendency towards interpreting theology and other matters through the lens of a reductive legal positivism. As such, we must be cautious about deriving our theology from canonical texts. <laughs> Conclusion It is ironic, given the thrust of my articles about Demete and his historical th theology, to have written this piece in his very style. Nonetheless, his, the purposes are different. The purpose here is not to is has not been to rewrite theology in light of dubious history, but rather to assert the primacy of theology over other disciplines, including canon law. While the examples given all show that the church sometimes expects us to apprehend reality and the faith and not wait around for legal declarations, the situation with concubinous clerics even shows the church intervening against those creating the artificial legal obstacles through their demands or for declarations. Canon law can indeed give us indications of the church's mind on certain things, but we must be on guard against a reductive positivist or voluntarist attitude. It would be a gross non sequitur to suggest that the existence of a, of a legal process to establish some reality means that the reality cannot be established by any other means or that the lack of a legal process necessarily leaves a lingering legal reality connecting contradictory things together like an unbreakable spider's web. Such a connection needs to be proved in each case. In one of his smaller works, St. Thomas Aquinas expresses the general principle with this observation on the relationship between theology and canon law. Quote, It would seem inconsistent and ridiculous for professors of sacred learning to quote as authorities the little glosses of jurists or to make them a basis of argument. Close quote. As we have discussed elsewhere, the sources of theology are divided into those which are proper or unique to theology and those which are improper, i.e. legitimate but not unique to theology. Of those proper sources, the authority of, scholast of scholastic theologians is the lowest coming beneath things like authorities, like the authority of scripture, the church, 
and of the fathers. And the authority of the canonists is treated as a mere adjunct of that sort. Uh, source. While St. Thomas's language is somewhat polemical, the point is clear. Theology has a primacy over canon law, and its theses should not be subject to revision based on arguments from canon law. Canon law can serve as a witness in building a theological argument, but we must be on guard against treating it as an authority which trumps traditional theology. End of article. Now, most of us who have been exposed to the set of a contest argument know that the set of a contest rely very heavily on St. Robert Bellarmine. Um, many of the arguments, like it seems like they just kind of bounce there, you know, back and forth between there. And then they like a couple of other people here and there. And then most of the other arguments are like, no joke, but like a lot of the articles that I read, they're usually from people whom I've, I've never heard of. Um, and then when you go to look them up, you come to find out that they're actually like set of, set of a contest scholastics and priests and stuff. I, I'm not a big fan of those type of arguments. One of the things that caught my attention about this argument is that I did not realize that I was actually heading into controversial territory with this article until I got to that list of the things that traditionalists do. The, uh, what was it, seven or eight things that traditional Catholics already do. And for those of you who don't remember, here's here are the judgments that, that trads, by and large, and like, this is not an... This, this list does not encompass all traditional Catholics at once. There's a little bit of disagreement with a couple of these bullets. By and large, trads agree that the new mass is a species of non-Catholic worship. By and large, trads agree that the doctrines of Vatican II, particularly, most especially, the spirit of Vatican II, and many official texts are in contradiction with the perennial teachings of the church. And in particular, um, the ones talking about the mystical body of Christ and the membership thereof, vis-a-vis, um, historically up until the Second Vatican Council, the mystical body of Christ was the Catholic Church. In the Second Vatican Council, they introduced, well, and then by extension, the Lutherans, and then the other Protestants, and then the rest of the Christians, and then the Jews, and then the Muslims, and then finally the atheists, the pagans, etc., etc., etc. Like what by the like, no joke, by the time you get to the end of that argument, it or the end of that segment, particularly in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, everybody is a member of the body of Christ. Everybody is part of the Catholic Church, basically, whether or not you actually believe the faith. That's kind of a big one. Like, that's actually like the big, ginormous, holy cow, that one. Um, there is debate as to whether or not Pope, Saint, uh, Pope John Paul II and Paul VI, etc., like, like as you go to run down the list, um, but the post-conciliar popes most especially, generally there's a lot of question as to whether or not we really think they're saints for the most part and this and this next one is actually very much tied to the new mass the novus ordo system 
for lack of a better word, is basically a non-Catholic religion as proposed by the Novus Ordo Missae, which is very clearly something that does not seem to be particularly Catholic. <clears throat> now, the next bullet, when I read it the first time, it was the first time I'd ever read it, that by and large, we must reject the 83 Code of Canon Law. Um, this is the first time I'm hearing that argument. Um, I can understand why. Most certainly. Um, but again, yeah, it's the first time I'd ever heard that argument. Um, the next one, that we must avoid the men who have been appointed by the putative bishops of our dioceses, and we must set up chapels either wholly or morally independent of these putative bishops. Now, these last two bullet points, if you've been paying attention, like uh, with some of the stuff coming out of Census Fidelium, some of the stuff out of Restoring the Faith Media, um, Trad Cat Knight, a lot of the guys who are talking about like what the post-traditionis custodis world is going to look, oh, and Dr. Anthony Steinover returned to tradition. Um, as far as set, setting up individual independent little chapels, like in your home and whatever, like prepare basically in preparation to go underground. These last two bullets have be become increasingly relevant. And by and large, like I said, pretty much with the exception of the rejection of the 83 Code of Canon Law, um, all of the rest of this, in some form or another, I've actually heard at least contentiously discussed among traditional Catholics or even so-called traditional Catholics. Um, and most especially, actually, a lot of this stuff has been decried by the grifter class um, of the so-called traditional Catholics. <clears throat> it's... By the time I got to that bullet point, it was right about the point when I realized that I was dealing with uh, what was basically a set of a contest article. Now, I don't mean to attribute set of a contism to uh, the person arguing. Um, it, this is written by S.D. Wright. So I'm not attributing, I'm not necessarily saying he, but I mean, this is generally the set of a contest view. And it's an argument specifically because we, because while he's not directly addressing um, the open heresies, and I would actually argue apostasies of Pope Francis. We do know that there are, <laughs> well, let's see, the very public heresy of Christ being the privileged way from Bishop Barron. And you can, and I really, and this is actually the thing that concerns me the most, is because if you apply the census fidelium, the one where you look and you go, ah, that doesn't really sound Catholic. We're not talking about, you know, Father James Altman, who very much seems to be hardening in a more traditional avenue. We're not talking about Archbishop Carla Maria Vigano, who seems to be very much like he like he's he seems to be very much committed to the to being a standard bearer for Christ the King. Um you actually get it from the soupages. And I would argue, actually, even um, uh, Bishop uh, Thomas Tobin of Providence, Rhode Island, who for a long time was considered to be one of the better bishops. And I was willing to cut him that, that, that benefit of the doubt until he allowed 
um, what look what appears to me to be the persecution of Father James Jackson. Do remember that Father James Jackson is actually being prosecuted in the Protestant uh, within within the borders of the Providence Diocese. <clears throat> But I would argue, to a degree, like, to a degree, you can actually lay some things that seem seem to be heretical at the feet of everyone from Bishop Barron to Cardinal Burke to um, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. In fact, actually, you can lay at the feet of Benedict XVI the heresy of a Pope Emeritus. If you wanted to make that argument. And here's where we run into an issue. Because it appears. At a glance to my very, very. Short sighted. And quite blind layman eyes. That there are really only about four bishops. And. Those four bishops would be the four bishops ordained by Archbishop Lefebvre. If we were to take the argument to the extreme, very clearly everyone from from Bishop Strickland down in Tyler, Texas, to uh, what's his face, uh, to Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione, to Cardinal Wilton Gregory and Cardinal Supich, and Bishop Tobin, and Cardinal Tobin, etc., etc., like you can run down the list. Pretty much everyone who is in the common, within the commonality of the, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and even the Pope himself, all of them can have, like, and some of them ridiculously prominently vis-a-vis Bishop Barron, all of them have done some ridiculously publicly heretical things. All of them. We've been willing to excuse many of them. Some of you even probably bristled when I mentioned Archbishop Cordiglione or Bishop Strickland down in Tyler. Or even Cardinal Burke. So here's the key thing. One. There is a possibility that all of them have managed to self-excommunicate. Of all of them, the only one who I see who is visibly repentant is Archbishop Vigano. And while he hasn't come out and publicly stated, I repent this, that, and blah, 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 he has come out and said, I was blind to the things, I thought everything was fine, and now I realize I was wrong. And you could make the argument that in some things he's still kind of wrong, but most of those after you, I mean, let's be real. Most of that actually has to do with global politics and, and stuff like that. So like, if you want to make the art, like from a theological standpoint, he's very much been um, pushing traditional, the, the vetus ordo, the usos antiquor based on like what, whatever, pick, pick your name for it. The TLM. It's, And that would actually reduce the number of bishops, like no joke. It reduces the number of actual bishops 
pretty much down to the Society of St. Pius X, the four bishops of the Society of St. Pius X, and then Archbishop uh, Vigano. And then you actually, the case could also be made for Bishop, Athena, um, Bishop uh, Athanasius Schneider. So we do know, obviously, we cannot carry this all the way down to its full. Um, there has to be something of the episcopacy, because here's the thing. If there's nothing salvageable in the, in the episcopacy of the main body of the church, and, it's, and we're only relying on the four bishops of the Society of St. Pius X, let's be real, maybe that's the case. If you notice, I'm not pointing out actually any of the Sedevacantus communities. I'm not talking about the old Roman Catholics. Why? <clears throat> because a case could be made that the church, while lost in swimming and figure and trying to figure things out, really didn't come to full fruition. Because these things have to progress to a point where it becomes obvious. And mind you, here's the thing. One of the things that I did take from this is that the argument, if you're going to make the, if you're going to make the argument that the Pope is a heretic, that it has to be something obvious. Yes. One can do ridiculously stupid acts, but it is not obvious to the majority of the Catholic faithful. It's not even, it's not, it's nowhere near. First off, it's not even obvious to the majority of the Catholic faithful that Pope Francis is a heretic. It's obvious to the traditional Catholic that Pope Francis is a heretic. But here's, here's what I mean. Church militant, which is trying to, you know, re-strengthen and purify the church, refuses, refuses to really go after Pope Francis. Why? Well, because of the supposed idea that it would destabilize the church beyond, it would unleash chaos in the church. As the, and here's the thing. It's as though God couldn't handle his own church. It's as though God, it's as, as though Christ had no power over his own mystical body. Like he could not figure out exactly what was going to be needed to really clean up the church and figure out how to, how to, how best to cleanse everything and sanctify it. I mean, the hubris of some of these people. <clears throat> Let me get back to the point. The key thing is, is that it is, is that we've reached a point of glaring obviousness. It was not obvious under Pope John Paul II that the Assisi, that the Assisi meeting, whatever thing, whatever that was, it was not obvious that that was enough. Okay. It was obvious to a lot of the people who held on to the faith, but most of the faith, most of the Catholic faithful just sort of went, okay, we'll kind of go along because we don't really understand in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council. So there are a lot of people who look at Paul VI today and they go, oh man, you ruined the church. But hindsight's twenty twenty. going through it, everybody was just kind of shocked and awed and like, like in shock and awed didn't, and didn't really know what to do. So it was not clear to a particularly large portion of the Catholic, well, to the, to the average man, what it, it wasn't clear what was going on so it couldn't possibly have been clear that it was absolutely heresy. But if you compare what was going on in the church in the 1970s to what's going on in the church today, and the fact that we now have 
50 years to bounce it back and forth from. That's where the change comes into play. This moves us to a point where it's like, dude, just look with your eyes. Does this look Catholic? Does this sound Catholic? Are those the words of a Catholic? Or is that some environmentalist, dirt-worshipping, pacha heifer BS? We've reached a point now where we can at least make the determination that the Novus Ordo Church is largely dangerous. Doesn't mean every parish doesn't mean every parish priest. It doesn't necessarily mean every vish, every every bishop. But it cannot be denied that the Novus Ordo that the that the conciliar church is a danger. And it is up to you to make that prudential judgment as to whether or not you will you will continue to sort of face that danger in order to receive the sacraments or whether you'll back up enough for the protection. And in particular, actually backing up enough for the protection of your family is of eminent and of preeminent importance. So someone like me, I can afford to make the risk. I can afford to because if I because if I need to go to confession, then I need to go to confession. If I need to, you know, if I need to go to confession, I need to try and meet specific obligations, this, that, and the other. I can actually brace myself against it, against the heresies, the apostasies, the sacrileges, and all of those other things. It is actually possible. I have not said whether or not it's right. But it is possible for me to brace myself since I'm old, since I have no kids, I'm not raising a family. I have the capacity to actually go in there and maybe sprinkle some seeds and maybe get some people out of there. <clears throat> but if I but if I had kids, if I'm trying to raise my children in the faith, uh yeah, no. We're not ever walking into those churches. Because the souls of my children are my preeminent concern. <clears throat> And because of that, I'm also inclined to follow the teachings of Pope St. Gregory, of Pope Pius XII. Like, just going from Pope St. Gregory to Pope, uh, to Pope Pius XII, you're covering a thousand years. From 1025 to 1930, 1940, 1950. You're covering a thousand years to say nothing of the instructions of Pope St. Pius X, of Pope Leo XIII, of Pope Pius XI, of Pope Benedict XV. Like, you can run down the list of, the, of these popes and pontiffs who have continually, continually hammered this home that we, mu we must profess the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, the one true faith, period, in all of its fullness. We're obligated when faced with the reality, when, when hey, the church has taught officially declaratively thus, then we must understand that whatever it is that we thought before, we must set aside and we must adhere ourselves to this. Even if we don't understand it, we have to take some time out to figure it out. Because if you, because if you get, and it's the best way to actually put it, so Rerum Novarum, um, I tried reading Rerum Novarum and I'm not a theologian. 
Um, in fact, at the time when I tried re reading Rerum Novarum, I didn't have nearly enough experience reading papal, papal encyclicals to even be able to put my brain into it, like to really engage it. So a lot of the stuff that, that, that uh, Leo XIII was teaching in, in that encyclical, man, I, I, what? I don't even know. What? What are we even talking about? I don't even know. I don't even understand this. <clears throat> now, I knew Leo XIII was a based pope. I knew Leo XIII of holy memory was a pope of holy memory, that he was a good pope and that he was well regarded. Him and St. Pius X. <clears throat> but there was just some stuff I didn't understand. And so I took what I understood and I kind of set it aside and I sort of held on to what the teaching was until I could wrap my brain around it. Until I could understand, well, this doesn't, because it literally was like, well, show me how to make, how does this even work? What does this even mean? And everybody I challenged on it, they couldn't actually explain it until one day someone could. And when they could and it clicked, I said, oh, and even though I'd basically discarded my previous belief for what the church taught, the moment I understood what the church taught, there wasn't even the possibility that that other garbage was even going to get back into my head. Because understanding the faith is what bolsters it for understanding what it is that makes it work, what it is that the church is teaching, what it is that it all means. is preeminently necessary. So I used to have, and somewhere, and I'm sure in one of the boxes I have, I'm, I'm sure I still have a copy of the Green of the Green Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it's a pre, um, pre-2013 copy. So it's a little bit more Catholic. But I tell you what, it's not nearly as Catholic as the as as the Roman Catechism, also called the Catechism of the Council of Trent. I don't even think I've picked up the green book except to try and reference something someone else was talking about. Why? Because it's so obviously true. And that's where we're, that's where we're kind of at. It is obviously true that the hierarchy, all the leaders in the church, whether or not they are aware of it, they're very, very destructive. They are by their mere existence and their continued necessity of preaching stuff that is questionable, intermixed with stuff that is mostly true, intermixed with stuff that is true, that you have to actually step back and go, yeah, no, I have to kind of stay away from you people because you people are dangerous. And that includes all the way up to the Pope. Now, we have a problem. If the Pope is a heretic and he de facto loses his office, obviously, then the See of St. Peter is vacant. Now, here's where we have the problem. If the See of St. Peter is vacant, what does that even mean to someone like me? I'm a layman. 
understand, as a layman, I don't offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, so I don't really have to put a Pope's name in this Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And when I pray, when I pray my rosary or I go to do, like, in, in the closing prayers, that last prayer, the Our Father, the Our Father, the Ave, uh, the, Our, uh, the Pater Nostra Ave and Gloria, um, for, for the intentions of the Holy Father, there doesn't even have to be a Holy Father in the sea because the intentions of the Holy Father are already basically covered by the church. So I don't have any reason specifically, aside from, you know, generosity of, of praying specifically for Pope Francis, and I do, obviously, for his conversion. He holds the title. How do we know he holds the title? Because the only other person who holds the title also probably is not the Pope. By the same stand, by the same standard of measure, Benedict the Sixteenth. <clears throat> so either Francis is the Pope or nobody's the Pope. And even if nobody's the Pope, you know what it does for me? It does absolutely nothing. In practice. But I must attend Holy Mass, and I must remain in communion with Rome. Even if Rome discards its communion with me, I must remain in communion with Rome. That much is obvious to me. It's not like I can break, break from communion with Rome and suddenly go into communion only in communion with Brooklyn, New York. And as soon as I said that, like, no joke, as soon as I said that, you realize exactly how ridiculous it would be. If I'm not in communion with Rome, what am I like? What, I'm going to be in communion with Kinshasa? Oh, I'm not in communion with Rome. I'm in communion with Miami. Really? <clears throat> I'm a Roman Catholic? Not in communion with Rome? Yeah, no, that doesn't work. So as a layman for a practice, as a practical matter, I have to be able to, I have to be able to name somebody. And here's the thing. If you have to know the name of the Pope in order to, in order to properly offer this, the holy sacrifice of the mass. And mind you, we know from many testimonies that you, that priests in order to offer the holy sacrifice of the mass, the only question they really need to know is, okay, who's the Pope right now? And they know that that answer probably cannot be nobody. And I say probably because I'm not a priest. I never went to seminary. But I'm willing to bet that the answer is probably, that the answer nobody is probably not an acceptable thing. Why? Because it just makes sense. And unless, well, let's put it this way. So you have the people who believe that, so, so you have Francis in the Vatican. You have Benedict in the Vatican. Another one really, I mean, another one really, I don't know. It's sort of weird, their dynamic. We know there can't be two popes at the same time, so that's not a thing. But you only have three choices right now, and the third one, nobody's willing to get on board with. Because you have Francis, you have Benedict, and then you have that weird one, Michael, who I think lives in Kansas or someplace. Someplace in the Midwest of the United States or whatever. So, so who are you going to put? So, whose name are you going to put in there? Hmm. Somebody's name has to be in there, and there's no other claimant to the throne. And that's the thing. Can we ride out a bad pope? Yes, we can ride out a hundred bad popes. 
because somebody has to be there. At least for now. And that's kind of the key thing. We don't have a legitimate other claimant. We only have one claimant to the throne. And if the church can endure Alexander VI, then it can endure Francis I. And remember that Alexander VI was the pinnacle of several bad ones. He was only the latest. And I think that was when the church actually started to turn back around, was after him. So no, I'm not a set of a contest. Somebody, I would be more in favor of supporting an anti-pope than a set of a con- than than being set of a contest. <clears throat> so, I'll put it like this: if they drop a nuke on the Vatican or something stupid like that, and po- and both Benedict and Francis die, um. I'll put in Pope Michael, because you know how much it matters? Not at all. It only really matters that that the sea is not vacant. And if it's going to be vacant, then it's probably going to be vacant at God's behest. Yes, the Pope is manifestly publicly a heretic. No. It doesn't take some legal declaration. But we're not going to get relief from this either. Because, as I've also stated, pretty much the entire USCCB is heretical. In fact, I would argue it's probably only like a couple African bishops that are even worth anything. Because we know the Germans are way gone. I'm pretty sure the French are way gone. And the British are definitely way gone. And the Canadians, I mean, don't get me started. They had like the Winnipeg, the Winnipeg, the Winnipeg statement. Come on. <clears throat> we'll get it figured out. It doesn't matter. Not at our level. At our level, praying for some repentance on the part of some repentance and conversion on the part of Pope Francis works. Maybe even some repentance and conversion on the part of Pope Benedict, because I don't know. We, we sort of have a weird, brand new situation there, too. And it's possible he could actually stand up and be like, yo, I'm the papa. I don't think so. I don't know. Probably be assassinated shortly thereafter, but I don't know. And I don't venture to guess either. Am I following Laudato's, Laudato C? No. Am I following Amoris Laetitia? No. Am I following Fratelli Tutti? No. Do I recognize Traditionis Custodis? No. Why? Because all of these are blatantly non-Catholic. And I'm not going to bother to try and dive in and figure out exactly what's salvageable out of any of those things. Because I don't care. I'm not a theologian. I'm a freaking mechanic. I'm not a canonist. I'm a mechanic. It either works or it doesn't. And I don't have to have the perfect Pope 
It's like saying I have to have the perfect tire. These tires change themselves. We have the processes for all that. So what happens if we have a blowout and we get a flat? Hey, look at that. We got a new tire. May take a little while. You know, AAA sometimes takes a while to get to you with a new tire. But they don't have to bring a perfect tire. They just need one to get you home. I don't need a perfect Pope. I just need a Pope so I can get to heaven. Doesn't have to be a good one. I don't need a perfect bishop. I don't even need a good bishop. I just need bishops so that I have a path to heaven. Doesn't even have to be many of them. Most of them could be wiped out and eventually we'd just like, hey, man, you be the bishop. <clears throat> Can't even act like that's never happened before, St. Ambrose. And that's kind of the point. The processes that we have today, yeah, most of them are probably garbage. I'd be interested to find out if there's a bishop willing to actually start consecrating one, other bishops, and two, if we're actually going to start doing, you know, the Second Vatican Council brought out that it was basically pre, uh, deacon, priest, bishop. And I thought that was garbage. I mean, we went on for 1900 years. Porter, lector, exorcist, acolyte, subdeacon, deacon, priest. And I still think that's garbage. I still think that the change is garbage. 1900 years of seven holy orders oh well we still have the seven holy orders you just get them like basically blah 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 no bro it's not how it's supposed to work it's not how it's supposed to work anyway i mean that's not how it was it's not how it organically grew it's not how god planted the seeds and then watered it it was how a whole bunch of people decided hey this would be a great idea back in 1960 so maybe we challenge some of these things. Maybe it's time. Maybe we have Pope Francis because God's tired of us not doing the work ourselves. What makes me make that, that claim? Well, see, there's this thing. It was the book of Exodus. God didn't intend to separate a tribe from Israel to be the priesthood. It was only after they made the golden calf that God was like, okay, no, no, no. We're going to have an order of priests and they're basically going to govern this whole thing and we're going to set it. We're going to set up a formalized structure and this, that, and the other. It's going to be one family. They're going to be the priests and that's it. Period. Because it was supposed to be the father of every household was supposed to be the priest. And that's in Exodus. It's in there. We were good up. They were good up until the golden calf. And then he's like, all right, hang on. We, no, 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 no. We need to, we need to do some stuff here. We need to clean some stuff up. His chosen people had no king until they said, Hey, we need a king. 
And he's just like, why do you want it? Why do you want a king? Why can't I be your king? Okay, you want a king? Cool. Then this is what we're going to do. It's basically the same thing that we've done with the Second Vatican Council. And I say we mean meaning Catholics, because I myself am a Catholic, even though I wasn't alive. But it's basically the same thing we did. Oh, you want to consolidate? You want to do this and the other? Okay, cool. Well, let's. I'm going to go ahead and let that fly. But eventually, you people are going to figure out that that's not the order that I wanted it. In the beginning, it was not so. How many times did Christ say that? In the beginning, it was not so. You can tell what God wants from us. And it could just be that bringing us to this level of disaster is his way of getting it. I mean, it takes time. But I mean, he's eternal. Yesterday, today, and forevermore. Never changing. So it's not like he doesn't have time. He has all the time he created. And then some. But we'll see. For those who think you can't criticize the Pope, oh, this much I know for sure. He's made it so obvious that at this point, if you're not criticizing the Pope, you're a moron. It's that simple. You're a moron, a heretic, or possibly not Catholic yourself. But we're going to start with moron. Like, you just don't want to see. Is that pertinacity under the definition? I don't know, and I don't care. I'm not pushing it that far. <clears throat> I can tell you that when I run into people who are absolutely crazy like that, you know what I do? I mute them. At least I do on social media. I go, you know what? I'm not going to block you because I don't want to incur that kind of backbiting, but I am going to shut you down so you don't show up so so you don't show up in my timeline. So I don't have to see you. And in that, it's the same thing as me driving 200 miles one way to go to a traditional Latin mass that I know for a fact is in communion with Rome. Cuz if I wanted to just go any old place, I'd just go to the freaking to the set of a contest joint down the street that's literally only like seven miles away. And I can certainly do that to fulfill my Sunday obligation, but I'd like to be able to receive Holy Communion. And they're only in communion with the Society of St. Pius X. They're not the Society of St. Pius X, but they're only in communion with the Society of St. Pius X. And we don't have, and this is the thing, I don't know why you would make such a big deal about going after people who were, you know, in, you know, attend the FSSP or the Institute of Christ the King or, or any of the others. Like, there are none within 400 miles. There's only the Society of St. Pius X and a monastery. The monastery, by the way, and I would go, and actually I would go to the monastery but they're 350 miles one way. I'd have to leave Saturday and I wouldn't get back until Monday. And that's even if I drive my car at its fastest pace and my car can go quite fast. Not happening. I have limits to what I can physically do. 
And anybody out there, particularly if you happen to be a priest who sell it, who, who's dual right, and you're like, well, you know, it shouldn't be a matter of personal pre- preference. Let me ask you this. Do you think I drive 200 miles? I spend six hours on the road every Sunday. I spend $60 in gas every Sunday just to go to a mass that I know my God approves of. Do you think that's just personal preference? Don't you think if it was just personal preference, I'd just go to the SSPV? They're seven miles away, bro. I say bro, and it's weird because I'm actually, I'm sorry. I meant to remember that I was speaking to priests in that one. So the SSPV is seven miles away, father. The SSPX is 200 miles away. And the Novus Ordo Misse is three miles away. But I'm not convinced that the Novus Ordo Misse is enough to please God. And if you... And if you wonder why I would question that, then I'm only going to point you back to Genesis, to the story of Cain and Abel. Because the Novus Ordo Missae appears to me like the offering of Cain. And the mass of the ages appears to me like the offering of Abel. And I just want to point out that Traditionis Custodis looks a whole lot like Cain killing Abel. If you made it this far, by far my longest single episode, kudos to you. I'd like to hear what you think on this particular topic, because I think I'm going to end up talking about this again. And I'd like to hear some other perspectives. So you can email me at RadioFreeCatholic at gmail.com. You can send me a direct message on sp3rn.com at Caleb the Mechanic. <clears throat> you can find me on Twitter at Mighty Colibri or at Radio underscore Catholic. The DMs are open because basically both of those accounts are basically public accounts. So you can send me a direct message on those if you'd like, or you can just at me on Twitter and I will be more than happy. I'll get the message eventually. Um, and I will respond as soon as I do. Admittedly, my phone is just sort of weird, so you never really know. It's a complicated life we're in, and I hope I made my stance at least clear enough. And I hope also that you take some time out to check out this article. It is wmreview.co.uk, and it is the article dated 16 December 2021. Read it. Think about it. Read your catechism. Do some spiritual reading. Have a blessed Advent. Pray 
for our hierarchy. Because it looks honestly like most of them got to repent. Like most of them look actually that like they have to at least do something that resembles the public repentance of Archbishop Vigano. Some of them will have to probably do more in all honesty. But they need your prayers. We need to be praying for the Holy and we need to be praying for the Holy Departed. And we need to be praying for our nation because our nation's in the wow, yeah. Let's talk about that. No, let's not. And while I don't concur with everything of the rest of my Catholic social media compatriots, I do agree with Michael Matt over at Remnant TV that we do have to band together. That we have to maybe quit cutting each other's throats. We certainly need to quit stabbing each other in the back. So pray for us in Catholic social media, particularly the talking head class. Ah, And have a blessed Advent. Truly, have a blessed Advent. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.